0: Not the message I'm gonna do today. There, I was working on a message message today. I really um, challenged the men, but I'm gonna hold that off for when we have a, um, a our next men's group meeting. Um, it's gonna be a little bit more specific, and um, I think we would like to do it maybe at a barbecue. Uh, and uh, you know, so if there's anybody that'd like to host a barbecue. Let me know, and you know, we can make arrangements to um, have a barbecue at your house and everything, and give a challenge from the Word of God um, for men. I knew several men were going to um, be gone today um, doing other um, family activities. But First Chronicles 29, um, just a scripture reading, nothing to do with today's message. I guess you could find application one way. But in verse 9, And it says, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. For the Lord have chosen thee to build in house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And here's an admonition from the Father to his son to fear the Lord, to know God, to know the Lord. You know what? there's a lot of pressure on parents today to have more of the mentality. You know what, you maybe go with church, but you know what, don't make your children go with church um, with you. Um, Don't bring them with you unless they just wake up out of bed naturally and beg, could I go with you? Um, But I don't know, most parents don't do that in regards to them taking a bath or brushing their teeth or going to school. Um, Usually there's more admonition to, hey, you know what, you're going, you need to do it. And here we see... David given a charge to his son to know God, um, to know Him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. That be with a willing mind, and telling him all oh, that you know what the Lord searches the hearts. You know this in Sunday school hour. It was in our part of our statement of faith where we were talking. I'm um, about giving, and Ellen did a good job on teaching. That. But one of the things he talked about was that is the heart. And you see that over and over, Old and New Testament. That where God says, I refuse your sacrifice, I refuse your gift. I refuse your offering. Because your heart's not there. And that's and in the Bible, even talks about it in the New Testament. That God doesn't even want our gift at the altar when our heart's not right with one another. And we're not right with other children of God. And so I might deal with this passage a little bit, our men's meeting, but it's actually something else I'm planning on doing at the men's meeting. But know the Lord your God. Know Him. Admonish your children. And um, today we're going to talk about James he was a man, okay, was called a son of thunder, as well as the apostle um, John was. And we see in his life that he was passionate in the beginning, lots of zeal, but he was very proud. He was arrogant. And many times... In his seal, he meant well, but yet Jesus would rebuke him. And then we see he's transformed to have a humble sill um, for the Lord. You know, recently, you know, in just disciplining one of our childrens, my wife took something special away, and then that child comes up to my. Wife, a little bit later, and says, Mom, I'm a changed man. And so, could I get that back? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's good being changed. But, you know, sometimes being changed isn't just with our words, that there's, I want to see actions. And I'm thankful that we do see actions in our children that, you know, when they do do wrong that they have a soft heart to want to get it right after they go through what they just went through. You know, sometimes it's not always the soft heart at first, but that there is sorrow, that there is repentance. And I'm thankful um, for children that love the Lord. We're going to see with James that, you know what, sometimes we could be passionate, but it could be misdirected, or it could be with a selfish ambition to talk about transforming that so we could be a changed man or a changed woman to have that seal properly um, placed. But we see um, with James and John that they were much more prominent than the family of Peter um, and, and Andrew. James. James and John are often referred to as the sons of Zebedee. You know, usually when something is mentioned, You know what? You look at in history books or whatever, and they say these people were the sons of so and so. Except for to say so and so, okay, kids, their name's not so and so, okay. But uh, names, but usually it is saying it that this these people are coming from a family of much prominence. That, That that they're from. Sometimes it could be wealthy. Sometimes it could be they're well known. Maybe they're a politician. Uh, but it's usually mentioned when there's someone prominent, and they're call, often called the sons of Sebedee. And so this appears to signify that Sebedee was a man of some importance. Um, Sebedee's prestige may, might have stemmed from his financial success, his family lineage, um, were both. His fishing business was large enough to have, mul- have multiple hired um, servants, so, you know, someone that's just barely making it, they usually don't have a lot of hired help, but we see he did. And yeah, I didn't realize the pulpit was going to be in the way I thought it was above it, but um, I'll read it. It says, And straightway he called them, and they left their father, Sebedee, in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Um, his entire family had enough status that his other son, the Apostle John, was known unto the high priest. And so someone that had resti- religious prestige in the community, and yet John was well known to the, um, the high priest. James's C. elder brother um, from such a prominent family may have felt that he should have been the chief apostle. And we, we, we do see that as, as we go on. We see, but that that kind of mindset often brought disputes between the apostles, Luke twenty two twenty four, and this is not the only time. And then also you could see other things that happen in the parallel accounts. Sometimes one gospel mentions a specific aspect of what goes on, and then you get into more detail elsewhere um, in the in the scriptures. But there was a strife among them. What of them should be Accounted the greatest? Which ones would be chief? That the apostles wanted to be on the chief seats, on the right hand, the left hand seat of Christ in the kingdom. Now James was part of the close inner circle of um, the three, apo- three apostles of the twelve. He, Peter, and John, John being his brother, were the only ones Jesus permitted to go with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Um, the same group of three got to witness Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. To you see where they saw a transfiguration of Elijah and Moses? And, 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 and then Jesus in a glorified state? Not all twelve got to see that. But these three... James being one of them. James was among the four disciples who questioned Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives. He was included again with John and Peter when the Lord urged the three to go pray with him privately in the garden. And so you see, he got to spend more time with Jesus than a lot of the other apostles. However, Jesus never did actually take first place um, um, amongst the apostles except in one regard, in that he he was a man of passionate zeal, he was a man of intense fervor, intensity. Jesus even gave James and John a nickname. He surnamed him Bonegurn, however you say that. But which is the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. He was zealous. He was thunderous, passionate, and fervent, okay, zealous, passion. okay, you know what, when, uh, when I was younger, um, you know, was just as a teenager, you know what, both my pastors, um, one of them called me a bulldog, and one of them called me a pit bull, okay, okay? That, that I would like to debate. You know it debate things in the bible um you know at many times um when it wasn't my place to do so i'm a teenager and i'd be in different online community groups when there was like american online chat i am that kind of stuff and debating with other pastors okay and uh, and i didn't know much what i was talking about but i was zealous you know what maybe they call me a son of thunder and stuff but um and sometimes they meant that in the in the Good way, and sometimes they meant it. And you know what? You're getting a little out of hand. You know what? You don't need to argue about every little thing. And you know what? In pastor, you know what? I learned some of that. Okay. You know, when you start getting it from different particular people, I meet people that were just like me. I'm like, man, I'm so feel so bad. My pastor had to deal with me. I know what know what they're talking about now. How like where there'll sometimes be some minute, small doctrine. That really doesn't matter. But you just got to be right. Okay, one of them. Okay, you know what? It's fine to have a healthy debate, discussion about it. But sometimes people could be so focused. But it's on the sons of God. Was it the righteous line of Seth um, in the Old Testament? Or was it angels that became um, humans and impregnated women? You know, some people that, okay, believe that um, it was angels. It's like they're focused on it. That's all they want to talk about. And I'm like, okay, that's fine if you want to believe that. But you know what? That's really not going to impact um, the congregation's spiritual growth in Christ. You know, we could discuss it. you talk about it. Things are fascinating to study about at times. But is it really going to change anything? Is it going to bring any kind of transformation? Or is it some kind of truth that is really going to edify? And there'd be sometimes other th- other things um, as well that I could discuss. But we see James was this type, that he was zealous, he was thunderous, he was passionate, he was fervent. He called the thunders of thunder. Might have been to the chide them at times, again, when they were having tempers, and other times an admonishment for their zeal. That when it's in the right place, that it's great, it's wonderful. You know, I look at some of the messages I preached while I was at Bible college and it's embarrassing to look back at them and then there's other times you know it looking back at them you know what I maybe was a little off there or a little overzealous but you know my heart was with the Lord and you know what some of the other stuff you know what the eggs gets to be um, we learn we grow and, you know, I'm thankful for Jesus that we see that he did not give up on anyone's particular personality. You see, the Apostle Peter, he would always put his foot in his mouth. He would always say things, at the worst time possible. Constantly, always. But then you end up seeing in his epistles, First and 2 Peter, where he admonishes Christians on how he used their speech. That he became a changed man. And Jesus never rebuked these people for being sons of thunder. But he did try to redirect it, to re guide it. You know, sometimes the way as men as fathers. You know, we could be, some maybe are the type where they're strong and authoritative. But many times maybe it's not the way you want to. Treat your wife the way you maybe treated the other men while you were in the military. You know, my wife was discussing. You know what? There's been sometimes in different circles, and um, particularly in Independent Baptist circles. But I think it was really probably in other circles as well. It's just we know the Independent Baptist more because that's what we're a part of. But is that in many churches where there would be kind of like really strict rules? Um, that really aren't in the Bible at all, like one that men had to be clean-shaven, okay? that, um, that um, Alan wouldn't be able to song lead if he had a beard. That, that happened in some um, independent Baptist church. Not all of them, okay? No, that, it wasn't like a whole group were, but it also stemmed from like, okay, people in Bible college. Okay? And, and in my wife has this theory, I think it may be accurate, is that a lot of the men, that became pastors in the 60s, 70s, 80s were men that were in the military, and the military had their strict rules about facial hair um, and everything, and then that transferred to how they pastored in the churches, and in some cases, sometimes the churches did well, people looked to uh, someone that was a leader, someone that took charge um, with others, and rubbed people the wrong way, because they're like, you know what? Where in the Bible does it say you can't have a bear? Jesus had a bear. He did. Okay? Jesus had a bear. And so I haven't really seen that as an issue in independent Baptist churches lately. Okay? You know, almost a lot of my pastor friends, once they started to realize they could grow facial hair, they quit preaching about it, and they start wearing it. They just couldn't grow one before. I still can't grow one, but I still won't preach against it. Okay? Okay? But there'd be times where you know what people would be zealous, sometimes from the air they come from, sometimes it's from the mentors they had, you know, there was that other thing with wire rimmed glasses. And a lot of times, a lot of times, preachers would talk about all this stuff mockingly, and I'm like, you know what, I've never really been in a church where they ever really made a big deal out of it. So sometimes we could make an issue that happened one time or just a couple of times, and the church hair or there, but they were a well-known speaker, and we broad brush it like it was the entire um, movement when it was not. But I know the beard thing, that was kind of commonplace. But most of the time, it wasn't even in churches, it was at Bible colleges. And at Bible college, it is kind of like a boot camp where, hey, you know what, you're gonna follow the rules. Okay, you know what, you're gonna be in before 10 o'clock at night, and you know what, that's just a training ground. But sometimes, after someone graduates from Bible college, people think that's how they're pastor their churches. And that wasn't always the college's intent in doing that, but sometimes there wasn't enough explanation to say, hey, no, this is just what we do at Bible college. You know uh, what, we we have these rules, we have these standards, this is what we're doing as a Bible college, we're not having it because the Bible says it has to be this way, just like McDonald's doesn't make you wear a particular uniform because the Bible says so, but that's just a company policy, okay? And so many times the college or church could have policies like that. They maybe are not direct in the Bible, but that's where it should be explained is that. That way traditions or rules we maybe have don't become as of their Bible truths? But we see James had a fiery disposition. And, you know, okay, when I listen to preaching, okay, there's a balance I like. Okay, I like it when the preaching is fiery, when it is strong, where it calls for decision, where there is conviction. But I don't like it when it's just ranting and raving. Okay, when it's just when it when it's ranting out of arrogance, out of pride, um, of like, oh, you know what? This is how we're doing. God, God bless it. Where it's where it, it's strong, but it's empty of substance. But if it's strong, biblical preaching, you know, I don't mind if, you know what, the preacher's face turned a little red, he's getting a little bit sweaty, he's passionate. I like passionate preaching. You know, it's one that's going to help keep my attention more. And someone actually says, okay, let's turn to John 3.16 now. Okay? you fall asleep. Now there's some preachers that that's been their style, and they've had Great success, particularly during the great awakenings, you know, when people didn't have other idols such as sports or other things where um, that was what stooled their heart, um, heartbeat, where there, there were less distractions. Well, monotone preaching got to people's teaching because it had substance. The power wasn't in the delivery, but there was power in the substance. James had a fiery disposition. Andrew, Quietly brought individuals to Jesus one by one. We see in James' life, he would rather call down fire from heaven to destroy villages. Um, he was outspoken. He was intense. He was impatient with evildoers. You know, I mean, um, a, a James ends up writing, um, in in James, in of so writing. You know what? Sometimes, you know, if you get confused on who the Jameses are in the Bible, I get confused as well at times, unless I'm studying it at that moment. There's like three or four different James. And sometimes it looks like they're talking about this one. Then it looks like, you know what? Maybe they're not the same. But anyways, the so writer of the Epistle of James writes, or no, what's the name of James? Jude. Okay? That, that, so Jude's easier. There's a couple of Jude's too. But there's some that make a difference through compassion. And there's others that like to hate the garment of the flesh or the wickedness and that they're pulling people out of the fire, different disposition, but God uses them both and God uses different personalities. But we see that James was tight, was outspoken, nothing wrong with zeal. Jesus himself made up a whip and cleansed the temple. People are, well, man, what's gone wrong with him? And we see that his disciples remember that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And so there's times where it's appropriate for um, anger. The trouble James got with Herod makes it apparent that James was not a passive or subtle man, even later on. Okay? But rather, he had a style that stirred things up. So that he made deadly enemies very rapidly. And we'll see later that Herod ends up taking um, his life. And it's not the preachers like Joel Osteen that, are gonna, that Herod's going to deal with. Okay? It's going to be preachers like John the Baptist. Okay? that They're speaking out. They're preaching against the wickedness. You know, again, you know, we talked about last week that so often people will use the scripture that he that have no sin cast the first stone to mean that we should never use discernment, we never should make judgment calls. But if John the Baptist acted with that mentality, then yeah, you know what? He would have never been beheaded. You know, if James never called out sin, he would have never been executed. But we see, you know, people ask the question, you know what? Whose job is it to convict of sin? Is it the preacher's job or is it the Holy Spirit's? No, it's both. Okay, It's the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's often done through the delivery, through the methods of preaching of the Word of God. So there are times where a preacher is to call people to a decision, to call people to repentance, not to just give flowery, inspirational messages but to give messages that are direct. And James was that type. And sometimes it got him in trouble when it was misguided. Other times it got him in trouble where it was properly placed. But the world did not like it. Go ahead and turn to Nehemiah 13. Pages are getting stuck. Alan, are you there? You wanna read go ahead and read verse twenty five? that kind of preacher. Now I wouldn't recommend the pastor go do that. Okay? Maybe that's where pastors got against beards. That you saw Nehemiah plucking them out. Maybe that's what it was happening. But we see that these men were passionate. And this was such a big deal with the children of God marrying these pagans that Nehemiah got in their face. He was direct with them. Saying, no, oh, do not allow this to happen. And so we see Elisha was that kind of person. So was John the Baptist. And zeal is great when it is used for righteousness' sake, but it can be dangerous when it's without temperance. Romans 10, um, 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. "...for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God." And so here he talks about how the Jewish people, they're zealous, just like he was, you know, when he persecuted Christians. He thought he was doing God favor, but it was wrongly placed, it was the wrong zeal and the wrong thing. Zeal without wisdom is dangerous. And zeal mixed with insen- insensitivity, ins- being insensitive, okay, it's often cruel. When we're not sensitive to those, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter nine, Luke nine in verse fifty-one. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, Will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, before we expound on that more, let's go ahead and go with Second Kings 17. 2 Kings 17, in verse 24, to give a little bit of background about the Samaritans. 17, verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutai, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sephirivarium, and placed them in the cities of Samaria, instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he have sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom he brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made sukkoth and the men of Cuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Evites made Nebahaz and Tartak, and the Sephirites burnt their children in fire to Adamelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephirim. So they feared the Lord, okay, so it says they feared the Lord, and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from this. And to this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statues or after their ordinances or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice them. Okay, so here's Samaritans, okay, basically a mixture of um, Jewish and Gentiles, okay, intermarian, And so then you had, that, um, you know what, they didn't know the Lord. They then sent someone to say, to teach them the fear of God. And in the Bible, it says they feared the Lord. Okay, there is some knowledge of Jehovah God. But in that knowledge, they served their own idols. They made their own gods. That although they knew of Jehovah God, they founded their own priesthood, they built their own temple, they devised a sacrificial system of their own making. And they made it a new religion based, in large part, on okay, some of the of the God of Israel and the pagan gods of the Gentile nations, and they blended them both together. If we're not careful, you know what? We could say that you know we fear God, we love God, we believe in God. But our life shows a pattern of a life that's lived unto the flesh. A life that serves other gods. There's nothing wrong with it against sports. Okay, Nothing wrong with it at all. It's a great place to be a lighthouse. You know, my kids have done baseball or soccer or other things. It's great for them to get to know the other kids. Okay, it's great, it's great, you know what, sometimes they go to go a, to a sports camp, or whatever it may be. You know what, there's time. But when that becomes the everyday thing, when that becomes our main heartbeat, it can become where it transfers to being an idol. Okay, we can enjoy those things and use those to the glory, God, uh, glory of God. Everything we do, we should be able to do to the glory of God. It could be our cars. Nothing wrong with having a nice car. You know, Art has some pretty cool cars. Okay? You know, every once in a while he might drive them in, but usually, usually he doesn't. But there could be a point where a car could become an idol. Now, just because you've been blessed to be able to get one, okay, that doesn't mean it's your idol. Just because because you got something nice, just because you maybe have a really nice house, there's nothing wrong with that. But when our life ends up consisting of the things we possess, then it becomes an idol. Then we're fearing God, but we're serving other gods. Maybe not to the same extent that these people worship their idols, but in a similar application. It could be where we come to church, maybe even give an offering, but our heart is not there. It's missing. We do it to please our spouse, or we do it because we know it's right for our children, but we personally are not engaged. Then we have other idols in our heart. But it's significant that Jesus chose to travel through Samaria. Even though the shortest route from Galilee to Jerusalem went right through Samaria, most Jews traveling, between those two places, deliberately took another route that took a lot longer, because they did not want to be affiliated at all with these pagan Samaritans, these that would worship God but have all these other pagan practices. They would be as Nehemiah would teach. You know what? We don't want our sons and our daughters marrying with these people. And it went from even to the point where before it was based on religion of these serving false gods to becoming where it was a race issue, where it was just, oh, you're of that race. And they, dis- they both despise each other. The, it is the original site of the Samaritan's temple. It was on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And that temple was built during the time of Alexander the Great, but it had been destroyed about 125 years before the birth of Christ. The mountain is still deemed holy by the Samaritans to this day. Um, they're convinced that um, the mountain was the only place where God could properly be worshipped. They believe that this is the mountain that Abraham was offering Isaac up. I know the Bible says it was Mount Moriah. Um, where the Jewish people look at is the what is the Temple Mount, but some but this explains why the Samaritan woman in John four twenty says, "Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship." Jesus says, "You know what? The hour is coming where it's not in the mountain, okay, but it's in spirit and in truth that we're to worship the Father." According to rabbinic literature, in order to, for a Samaritan to convert to Judaism, one must first and foremost renounce any belief in the sanctity of that mountain. They had to renounce that. that that's not the proper mountain. The Jews Samaritans hated each other. And then we see, as we read, the Samaritans were treating Jesus with such deliberate contempt. That Jesus sent some messengers ahead, let them know we're coming through, and they would not let them to come through. And the reason wasn't because he was Jesus. A lot of the Samaritans loved Jesus. A lot of Samaritans followed Jesus. But it was because Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. Right, That's where he's going, okay, he's not coming through here. They're not coming. And so they made it difficult for him. And so. 1 Kings 16.32 says, And he reared up an altar for Baal, in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. This is Ahab. And this verse says, And Ahab made a grove, an idol. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. A lot of stem from in Samaria. And so James' reference to Elijah is significant. Samaria was the same place Elijah commanded fire to come down. And so when the people, Samaritans said, no, you're not allowed to come through, James and John are like, come on, let us call fire down. Let us be those apostles. Let's do it. Let's get on. Call fire down and destroy these people. Elijah did it. Let us do it. In 2 Kings 1 to 17, we won't turn there for sake of time, but in 2 Kings 1, 1 to 17 is where it talks about, where okay, 1 and 50, or, or Elijah went up to the king and would talk about how he's going to die in his bed, and, and then there were, they sent enemies to um, come come towards Elijah, and then Elijah says, of the Lord God be heaven, let them be consumed with fire, and psh, fire came down from heaven. They were consumed. They sent another fifty and one. Same thing happened again. Fire came down, consumed them. The wrath of God came on wicked, evil people. Third group came. This group got smart. He's getting on his knees. He's like, please, please don't. You know, we come in peace. And that, and that, and that group was spirit. So all of this taking place in the very region where Jesus was to travel. Elijah's fiery triumph was well known to the apostles. And when James and John suggested it, it was a response to the Samaritans in hospitality. They thought they were standing on solid precedent. Elijah was not condemned for his actions. Rather, it was an appropriate response from Elijah as it was the wrath of God coming down, not the wrath of Elijah. But it was not a proper response for James and John. Their motives were wrong. Now, Jesus had never shown anything but goodwill toward the Samaritans. He had healed the Samaritans' leprosy and committed that man for his gratefulness. Now, there were many more that Jesus healed, and they did not come and give thanks. But the Samaritan man... He came and gave thanks. He had accepted water from a Samaritan woman. Well, she had two things against her, being a woman and being a Samaritan at that time, where women were often despised um, to a large extent. And Jesus really the one that gave, gave the greatest liberty um, to women woman anywhere. But we see um, that Jesus accepted water from a Samaritan woman. She was shocked. Now you know, Jews never deal with Samaritans. You know, never asked for anything. And Jesus says, if you knew who asked of thee, give me this water. You would have asked for living water. And we see that. She went out and told the city, the men about this man, Jesus, that she had been transformed Form. We see is uh, we see as well that he had made a Samaritan the hero of one of his best known parables in Luke ten, that when he says to the centurion, I, I have not seen such great faith in Israel. Samaria, I found this great faith, but in Israel, I had not found it. Later, he would command his disciples to preach the gospel in Samaria in Acts one eight. We see Jesus had always been full of kindness and goodwill towards the Samaritans. But like Jesus did not get that back later when they were trying to go in. And so, maybe it wasn't really an improper zeal. You know, like James and John was kind of like one, like, this is Jesus, how dare you? Well, you know, there's sometimes where we could defend another and get carried away. Okay, say you say, say if someone, say you saw me on the street just walking by, and you just saw this man coming out, cursing me out, um, getting in my face, and I'm just listening, just being calm, and you see it. Okay, in one way you may be rightfully be like, you know what, how dare they talk to my pastor that way? How dare they talk to another Christian that way? But I wouldn't need you to come in there and start cursing at them or start causing a fist fight. Okay? You know, there's times where we don't need to react um, like that. Jesus was by not by any means condemning what Elijah had done in his day. Nor was he advocating a purely pacifist approach to every conflict. Elijah did what he did for God's glory. The fire from heaven was a public display of God's wrath. It was a Judgment they deserve against unthinkable evil regime that had sat on Israel's throne for generations. Remember this nation that they would build statues and then they would burn those statues with fire and then they would put children on them. It's a sacrifice. Sometimes it would be inside the belly of the statue. And so for Elijah to call down fire from heaven to destroy this people really spared many other children. Jesus' mission was different than Elijah's. Christ had come to save, not to destroy. Okay, There's times where, yes, Jesus, he is judged, where he, he judges. But Jesus was on a particular mission now. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus taught them a great lesson. Their zeal to defend Christ's honor? Sure, maybe it was a great virtue, but it's far better to get fired up with a righteous wrath than to sit passively and endure insults against Christ. So the resentment over seeing Christ deliberately slighted. is admirable some measure again, but their reaction was tainted with arrogance um, and just wanted to have them destroyed. But Jesus wanted to see them saved. Even the people that would not receive a man. Jesus saw their good. And there's going to be times people maybe oppose you. They're against you. I've had people against me. I try to love them. I try to show generosity. Try to care for them. Sometimes I could even get in the flesh too. Okay, None are without sin. Okay, But I try to. But, and you know, that's where we want to try. Okay? We want to do what's right, to understand that Jesus came not to destroy, but to save. And so Jesus taught them love and kindness, mercy. And so they went to another village. And we see later that Philip the deacon went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Before, they wouldn't have wanted them to get saved. Peter didn't believe they could get saved. And then when the Holy Ghost came upon them, they like, wow, I guess I can't doubt that. See, Acts 8, okay? And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And so no doubt, well, this is why I believe. The Bible doesn't say it, okay? I believe that there were likely people there that were possibly the same people that would not receive Jesus into the place. I don't know that, but there's a possibility that it could have been the same people. And that now they get to know Jesus. They get to know of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and they know his salvation. And no doubt, James himself would have rejoiced, that the people he wanted fire to cry down on, now he rejoiced to see their salvation. We see in Matthew 9, 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And it was this promise of thrones that caught the attention of James and John and their mother. Go ahead and turn to Mark 10. And we're, we're almost done. Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 in verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, We would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can and Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my mother- left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. When you compare with the other Gospels, you see it was the mother that initiated the conversation, wanting to go, Hey, grant for my sons that they would be able to be on your left and right hand. And Jesus talks about, he's not talking about water baptism here, okay? He's not saying, yeah, you can get baptized in the water like I'm being baptized. But he's talking about the hardship, the trials, the death that they would eventually face, um, that they would learn to suffer like he suffered. Go ahead and turn you Acts 12. We see that they had, were... James was a man in passion. He's like, you know what? I could do it. Acts 12, verse 1. It says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vet certain of the church, and he killed James the brother of John with the sword, and because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quarterings of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. And so now we see um, Herod. Now, this is a different Herod. This is the nephew of the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded and Jesus um, ar- arrested and everything. But we see James preach and he suffered the sword. He was baptized with the type of baptism Jesus was baptized with. He drank the cup that Christ gave him to drink. Um, We see, go ahead and turn to still chapter 12, verse 18. And we see And what man sows, that shall he reap, that God is not mocked. And we see in verse 18, Herod reaps. He says, Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers, what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamber when their friend desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon the throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, and not of a man. They had exalted this king to God's status. They're chanting. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. See, we don't need to take on the wrath of God. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We see James in his life learn that over time. But we see it displayed here. James is killed. We don't see the other apostles start saying, you know what? Death to the king. But to continue to pray to seek God. And God will vengeance take vengeance for his children see in Revelation that God will judge those who persecuted his children. James was the first of the apostles to be killed and the only one that's um, written about in the Bible as far as one of the apostles being killed. Um, but initially, James wanted a throne of glory. Jesus gave him a cup of suffering. Initially, he wanted power. Jesus taught him servanthood, to be a servant. He wanted a place of prominence initially, but yet Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. He wanted a rule. Jesus gave him a sword not to wield, but to be the instrument of his own execution. And yeah, he suffered for the cause of Christ. Clement says that the one who led James to the judgment seat, his church history, I'm not found in the Bible, but church history, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he was himself also a Christian. They were both, therefore, he says, led away together, and on the way he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering a little, said, Peace be with thee, and kiss him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. Now, the Bible doesn't say this happened, but it's possible from a historical account. Um, According to this historical account, that the one that was leading to execute James felt guilty and then confessed to being a Christian, and they were both beheaded. Another church um, historian of the 300s said passes an account of James' death that came from... In the end, James had learned to be more like Andrew, bringing people to Christ instead of itching to execute them. James is a prototype of passionate, zealous, front-runner who is dynamic, strong, and ambitious. Those aren't bad traits. It's just like with anything. We could use good traits for either good or we could use it for bad. Okay, you could use technology. For bad, or you could use it for good, and same with your personality that you have. You could use it for bad, or you could use it for good. Okay, say if you're a type that you're a natural leader, or you're a trained leader. Well, how you exercise that leadership could end up affecting people in a negative way, or it could be used in a positive way. You know, Hitler was a great leader. Not in the sense of being a great person, okay? Don't get me wrong. He was a terrible, wicked person. But he was able to motivate, inspire, and lead the German people. Terrible things. But he knew how to lead. Man, just think if he used that talent that he had for the glory of God instead. You know what? Leaders... you're a leader in here, you know what? You could use that leadership for good, or you could use it for bad. Somewhere along the line, James had to learn to control his anger, to bridle his tongue, redirect his zeal, eliminate that thirst for revenge, and lose his selfish ambition. And the Lord used him in a wonderful way in the church. Great way. My prayer for you is that you know what God will use you greatly. But allow the Spirit of God to guide you. Don't be trying to lead God. Trying to say, okay, God, this is what I want. Now, God, you make it your will. Now, seek God's will. Seek His kingdom. Seek His righteousness first. And let all the other things be added to you as God, Sovereign Lord, chooses to add to you. And if He allows you to suffer like James did, Embrace it. If God allows you to see, appear more victorious, embrace it. Both were victorious in what God called them to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, that you help us to be men and women, Lord. Help us to have a zeal. Help us to be passionate for you. Help us not to be a pacifist. Help us not to be a lethargic church. Help us, Lord, to be have passion. Help us when we come Together on Sunday mornings, that it's not like we're just doing it out of routine, and we come and we go. But help us to be passionate. Help us to reach out to people. Help us to seek people to edify. Help us if you use us in teaching to be passionate about it, to be excited about it. Help us to be people that would lead our homes. To be those the wives that follow their husbands as they lead their homes and as they guide their house help us to be passionate about the things of you Lord but help us Lord to do so with temperance that we don't maybe brush off a newborn Christian that maybe doesn't understand everything help us Lord to be an example in Jesus name Amen